Hi, everyone. Welcome to Key Change, a COC podcast, where we explore everything about opera from a fresh perspective. We're your hosts, Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. Hello again, and welcome to episode 15. It's really hard to believe we're nearly at our last podcast for the spring. We've had such a great time connecting with so many amazing guests over the last few months, and we've loved hearing from you. The reviews you leave on Apple Podcasts are great for helping other people find their way to us at Key Change. Yeah, we'll be taking a break at the end of the season, but please keep those comments and questions coming. You can tag us anytime on social at Canadian Opera or email us at audiences at coc.ca. You can also send us a voice memo. There's instructions for how to do that at coc.ca slash keychange. So today, we wanted to revisit a topic we explored earlier this year, opera and criticism. Yeah, so back in March, we spoke to longtime writer and music critic Anne Majette. Now, as someone whose career has spanned several decades and positions with the New York Times and Washington Post, she gave us a lot to think about when it comes to the challenges of critiquing art, the particular challenges of critiquing opera, and what kinds of skills and considerations are required to be a quote-unquote good critic. We stepped back and took a long-lens view at the value of opera criticism. And one thing that really stuck out for me that Anne had said was that it's important to be really honest about a production. So if a production was just so-so, you need to say that for many reasons, one of which being if someone's new to opera and they read a review that this was a great production, but it's only a so-so production, it might alienate new listeners and new audiences unnecessarily. That was a thing that I hadn't really considered. And she had a lot of great thoughts like that. And for anyone, if you happen to miss that podcast and this recap is piquing your interest, uh, now's a great time for us to mention that all of our episodes can be found at coc.ca slash keychange for listening anytime. Today, we're sharing our chat with theater critic Karen Fricker. Karen Fricker is Associate Professor of Dramatic Arts at Brock University. She's a theater critic with the Toronto Star and author of the original stage productions of Robert Lepage, Making Theater Global. Karen is also regularly involved in a number of initiatives around the future of theatre criticism in the digital age. Hi, Karen. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Robin, and lovely to meet you, Julie. You too, Karen. So, Karen, I first met you at the Performance Criticism Training Program through Generator, and that was my introduction to theater criticism. And I'm wondering about yours. How did you get started in it? Well, it was it was long before then, Robin. Um, I, I guess my start in theater criticism was kind of organic and and lateral and a process of figuring out that it was something that you could do and that I could do. Because I was I was a theater kid since I was 13. But I actually didn't know when I applied to university, and this is me revealing my ignorance, for which I continually atone with my students, uh, that I like I didn't know you could study theater other than being an actor. So because I'd been a good academic student, I said, oh, well, I, I have to go, I have to go study English. And so I, I didn't really, really explore theater in university. 
And But I found that during university and after university, the thing that I loved the most was talking about it afterwards. That was just like the most delicious thing. And I went, I went to University of California and then I went to London, UK as soon as I graduated and I waited tables and I just saw everything and went to the pub afterwards and argued about it with friends. And like, that was like the, that was just so exciting. And then I, through kind of talking to folks and reading all the newspapers, I was like, well, maybe I could write some of this down. And I started uh, selling a few pieces to publications in London and, you know, fast forward about a year and a half in a bad visa situation. And I ended up in New York and that's when I really started trying to figure it out about, about how to make a career as a theater writer. So it, but it was, it, it was a process of talking myself into believing that it was something that, that you could do that I could do as a woman and that I might actually get paid to do. And from the vantage point of where you're at presently, Karen, what do you see the role of a theater critic being? That's always the biggie. Um, I mean, I think I think at its base, it's the, the role of the theater critic is to respond to artists. It's res- to respond to an offer that is made in the form of an artwork. And... Um, for me, it's it's also important to say that it's the continuation of a conversation that artists artists start up. They say, "Here's something we got to say. We wanted to say this. We wanted to express it in this form. Here you go, audience." And a theater critic is a member of an audience who says, "Oh, thank you for that offer. Here's some things I think about what you did." And I think that that like that to me is the heart of it. When you're a professional paid theater critic for a mainstream outlet, it isn't just an exchange with the artists. It's an exchange to your, with your readers and with your editor. And so your, what you say is elevated over that of other audience members who might still be talking about it in the pub. And so it's, it's, it's public speech. It's, it's speaking about theater in public, think about the arts in public and um, it's feedback for artists. It is a form when you're talking about a mainstream outlet like the Toronto Star that I write for, it's a form of consumer guidance or that's that's how it's positioned, right? Like in the real times, there's lots of stuff to see in Toronto. How are we going to choose? Well, maybe we're going to go read some reviews in the Star and let that help that have that help us figure out what we want to see. And the other piece of it that and this is super important to me as a as an academic is it's the historical record. And that it's you are writing stuff down because theater disappears and opera disappears. And if we didn't have the written records of critics from the past, then we'd really be have massive holes in our understanding of performance histories. So has the job changed since you started? For me, it has. I mean, I'll say I'll speak quite subjectively about about my own work and then I'll kind of talk more broadly. The way my career has played out, I've always been a foreign correspondent. So when I first started reviewing in New York through a series of hijinks, I ended up being the New York theater critic for the Financial Times newspaper in London. Um, So I was writing notices from Broadway to a readership that was mostly, you know, international business people, which was kind of weird because I was like 25. 
And then I moved to Ireland and I started writing for The Guardian, which is a London-based newspaper about Irish theater. So this current moment for me where I'm writing about theater in Toronto for the Toronto Star is something I always really wanted. And I'm so glad I've gotten to have that in my career, which is that I'm actually writing in the market, which means I feel like the, the relationships are really acute. And for me, the stakes are higher because it, this is my theater world. I'm, I'm not saying to people over there, this is what's happening in Toronto theater. I'm saying this is our world. So there's a, there's a sense of investment and responsibility. I feel like the, the job's changing because we are now, and I hate the word competing, but there's now everyone's a critic, right? Now, thanks to the advent of the internet and social media, there's a lot of pressure on this question of whether expertise, which is what I've always understood is what the, the professional critic is meant to bring, is that they know their field inside out. I feel that that is continues to be very important, but that's always the conversation I find myself having is, do we really need quote unquote expert opinion anymore, given that so many people are out there on Twitter and Instagram and everywhere else posting their points of view? And I mean, I have a lot of things to say about needing a whole multiplicity of points of view from folks from all kinds of backgrounds. And we can get to that, I'm sure. But so to, to just finish answering your question of like, how has the job changed? Those are, those are some of the factors that I see are really affecting the field at the moment. And now to follow up with the really obvious, how has it stayed the same? Well, right now it hasn't because, <laughs> I mean, what's been super interesting during COVID is the fact that responding to work that's coming through Zoom or another media platform is different than responding to work that's live on a stage. So when I'm teaching my students theater criticism, as I continue to do at Brock University, we're having to take on board a whole bunch of different factors uh, in terms of, of how they're using the camera, how acting is different if you're acting to a Zoom in a Zoom context, et cetera, et cetera. But bracketing that... Um, I still, when I'm a working critic in the real times, I still am turning up at 7.30 or 8 o'clock and having that, and having that rush of adrenaline and that, that moment of like, it's, it's me and the work. And no matter how much research I've done, no matter what kind of day I've had, no matter how annoying that person sitting next to me is, that the the that sense of being in relationship with something that is live and in front of me is what always drew me to it and that still is the same when live theater is happening and you may have touched on some of this karen but we're curious about what are some of the biggest challenges that you've faced or face presently as a theater critic i think i mean i think the biggest challenge facing the field of performance criticism right now is um it's incredible whiteness. Um, and I think that isn't just that most of the people that I've ever known who've practiced this craft are white university educated folks. It's all of the structural, societal, historical factors that have made that be the case. Uh, because I think, and this is something where I feel like my, I am in a period of deep 
reflection and change about this work. And it has to do with the times that we're living in. It has to do with the year that was 2020. It has to do with BLM. And it has to do with indigenous resurgence on this land. And I think a lot of us who are thinking about theater criticism in Canada right now are asking the question, why why aren't there more voices that are representative of all of the communities and experiences in Toronto, for example, because so much of the exciting work and the important work and the timely work is, is coming from voices that were historically underrepresented. And I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to mention something that would be well known to those of us within the theater world, perhaps less, less known in the opera world about this time last year, uh, indigenous theater maker named Yolanda Bunnell I wouldn't say disinvited, but she she requested that when she did a show at Theater Pass Murai, that Indigenous, um, Black, and people of color critics and otherwise minoritized folks, particularly queer folks, she invited them to come respond to her work, and she preferred not to have others come respond to her work. And this caused a huge hullabaloo with reporting on it as far as away as London, UK, and I think it was a it was an incredibly important intervention that Yolanda was making because it disrupted a whole bunch of conventions. Because it's a convention that we get free tickets to go see work and write about it. It's a it's a quid pro quo, it's a relationship that Canadian Opera Company has with the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star and the CBC. But it was not always thus. And I think Yolanda's intervention was on behalf of herself, but I, I feel also it raised a question, which is who who can really speak and respond to this work in a way that is from a, a place of understanding and sympathy um, resonance, that if she's offering Indigenous ceremony, which is what I understand she was doing, Robin, as an Indigenous person, has a way into that work. And I would, I would go so far as to say almost a right to speak or to be present to see that work that might not be as, I I feel Robbins is a more important voice to hear about that piece than mine. Well, and to your point about expertise, it's one thing that came up in a previous episode when we were talking with Hannah Chan Hartley, and I'd asked her a question about Baroque opera. And she's like, oh, well, I can't really speak to that because it's not my specialty. Like, that's totally okay to do genre-wise, but the whole bug situation, it became incredibly clear that it wasn't about expertise. It was about who felt entitled to sit in that seat and get that ticket and have their voice heard. Um, But how can you be an expert if you're not part of that world or you're not actively involved with that world? Yeah. This is um, flashing me back to a really interesting set of conversations that I had when I was um, teaching and working as a critic in London, UK, when some of the senior white male critics went to review a musical that may or may not have been wicked, but let's just say it was wicked. And they just didn't get it. And it, it, and the question was raised by my students, like, why don't they send teenage female identifying people, or even teenage male identifying people, like who's the work for? And why aren't we hearing their voices? And this has since been there's some really fantastic musical theater scholarship that's been written by the critic Stacey Wolf in the States about 
female responses, young female responses, the role of fan discourses around certain kinds of art forms. That question has been circulating for me for a while, but it has really landed in a really acute way at the moment in Toronto around why should somebody hear from me if they could hear from Robin about Indigenous work? And I'm working on a project at the moment um, around the Obsidian Theatre Company, CBC Collaboration 21 Black Futures, which is an incredibly ambitious and important articulation around the question of the futures of Blackness. And we commissioned 21 Black University students to respond to the works because that's the voices, like they are the future of Blackness. And the we here is York University, Brock University, CBC and Obsidian. We said it's it's response. It doesn't have to be a quote unquote review because there's all kinds of colonial patriarchal histories around this idea of the solo written review where it's one person laying it down in a really authoritative and kind of end of conversation way. We said respond. And we've got poems, we've got songs, we've got thought pieces, young people recording themselves so you can see their embodied person expressing these ideas. And for me, that's, that is the future of theater criticism. And this is all happening like super real time. The 21 Black Futures to me is, is proof of concept. And I've been, I've been so wanting this concept to be proved, which is what kinds of amazing things come out when you pull away the formality and pull away the histories and pull away the power differentials and just say, here's an offer. What do you think? And I expect in like 10 years from now, this is going to be an incredibly memorable moment in your career. But until we get there, (laughs) um, (laughs) what's particularly memorable up until this point being a critic, your your experience as a professional. I think, and I have a I've have a lot of conversations about this with Carly Maga, with whom I share the job of theater critic of the Toronto Star. The conversations we get to have, the rooms we get to be in, the access that we have, the sense that we are part of a community, um, a particular part of a community, but you know, that is experiencing incredible growth and change, that we can be helped help getting the word out about what's going on on the scene. I love to be in the middle of a scene. I just love it. And I I love to feel like I have a voice within culture and within the scene. And that's why I think I I underlined before, like why this is such, there's been such an exciting five years at the star is because it's, we are, we're, we're in the community. It's not far away. It's here. So I think my most memorable experiences are feeling like we get to say to our readers, guess what? This is so exciting. This is so cool. What's happening. You want to know about this and feel like we have agency in figuring out what the important stories are that we want our readers to know. Karen, I'm curious. So in addition to your work in theater and theater criticism, I'm really curious about your perspectives on opera practice and opera production. And I'm told that you did see Hadrian at the COC, so a couple of years ago. And uh, you've recently published a book about Robert Lepage, and he and Ex Machina have directed a number of productions for the COC. So we'd love to hear about your connections to these works and also that theater opera crossover and what you've witnessed mm. in, um, in attending those productions by Hinton or by Lepage, for example. 
Right. I mean, I think I've been thinking back to, I, I'm pretty confident that the first operas I ever saw were um, Bluebeard's Castle and Ervartung, which were COC productions, Lepage's first opera productions, which then went to the Brooklyn Academy of Music in New York, where I was then living. And at that point, I was quite interested in Lepage's work as a journalist. And so, of course, I would go to see the latest Lepage at, at BAM. And that was really exciting. I had nothing to compare it to at the time, but I was like, I thought they were pretty good. And I think they've, I think they've held up. What Lepage brings to the plate is an incredible uh, visual sense, right? He, he, he creates total works of performance with, and with incredible acts of onstage transformation of objects and bodies. And you, and I think he chose well with those short opera pieces where there were so many, um, transformations that that he could create on stage. Um, I also, at that time in New York, was working for a company called Stage Bill, which doesn't exist anymore, sadly, but creates it created program magazines for, for uh, performing arts organizations. And so we served most of the constituent organizations of Lincoln Center. So I got, I got to go to the Met. So I was spoiled super young because I... I got to see like some of the most magnificent, beautifully sung, beautifully played, lavishly staged operas. But when I was thinking about opera experiences that have really stuck with me, it is interesting because it is the ones that are kind of theater crossovers. Because I'm I'm remembering um, Satyagraha, the Philip Glass opera that um, Fela McDermott directed with Improbable Theater at the ENO, taking a form of theater making that I very much identified with this particular theater company and just blowing it out like son- sonically, imagistically, like massive chorus. And that that's, I guess, my appreciation of opera, and it's kind of an obvious thing to say about opera, is that there's so many more levels and elements of, of expressivity and theatricality and meaning-making that, that are available to artists. I often can find opera challenging if because I'm so used to plot and character, and when it takes like 10 minutes to say one thing, there's part, because I'm not music people like you are, that I'm not, I can't appreciate the, the, the nuance of the music and what new they're bringing to the music. And I find that frustrating, but it's also, we all have stuff to learn, right? So, I mean, I feel like that's an area in my work as a spectator where I can really grow is learning more about music. In our practice with Key Change, we kind of look at conventional traditional roles and think about deconstructing them or asking why. And I, I feel that that's parallels very nicely with the work you do with circus and its others. Is that correct? That's true. Um, circus and its others is a international research project that I've been co-directing for about six years to kind of question to what extent mainstream circus practices continue to be heteronormative, racialized, not progressive in terms of the the stories they're telling and the performance languages and the representations in them. And this this was kind of a literally a question that I asked with a couple of friends in the foyer of a theater in Montreal and it's turned into this international 
inquiry because what we found is that circus makers and circus scholars around the world are very engaged with this question. So we've been we've been doing digital panels during COVID. So we just had a panel about Australian circus. We had an incredible panel of, about how circus is affecting theater artists around the globe. And we had about five continents represented, hearing from African theater makers, middle I mean, circus makers, Middle Eastern circus makers. Um, and the, the it's all glued together around this question of circus as a performing art form that makes meanings and asking questions about like what tropes are being circulated and recirculated and questioned and how how can circus be used to to break down some some stereotypical representations um so i think the, it sounds like there there is kind of a, a vibration there between that and what you do here on this podcast because I know as a key change fan that you're um, that you're constantly looking to ask questions about about representation. I've kind of had this niggling feeling for a long time that traditional opera there, there's just a lot of parallels between traditional opera and traditional circus with the the various roles the sort of high flying aerialist the clown the you know and why certain people have certain roles and i just kind of feel like is the opera just aristocratic circus i don't know enough about i have to say i don't know enough about opera or traditional circus in order to answer that question fully but i could take a little stab because uh, traditional circus is i think picture barnum and bailey picture three ring circus picture it's vignette based right it's like here's the animal act and then here's the juggler and then here's the high wire act contemporary circus picture Cirque du Soleil is much more theatrical it tends they doesn't really have a plot but it kind of has a theme and um it's brought together through like musical and scenic elements that give it a kind of cohesion um what we have found incredibly persistent in circus is gendered, that the apparatuses and the acts are gendered, right? So that um, Ariel is feminine, juggling is masculine, um, clown tends to be mostly masculine, and hand to hand, which is anything that's two performers where um, one is kind of the base and the other one is lifted. The base tends to be a dude and the lifted person tends to be a light woman. And what's super exciting that's happening in some progressive circus practices is breaking, consciously breaking down those tropes by having, and I saw um, the National Circus School in Montreal has a, has a um, show every year where their graduating class does their act, right? And seeing male-male pairings in trapeze is incredible and seeing a female as a base in a hand to hand act like that, that is subversive, fantastic stuff. And it, I feel bad kind of saying that that's subversive in 2021, but it's still, the work is still to be done to be really breaking down these stereotypes and they come for a reason, like, like masculine bodies tend to be bigger and heavier. So there's a reason why there's the base, but how about a sturdy girl as a base and, and how, what are the what are the aesthetic gendered um, 
what are the implications of that? I find the implications of that really exciting. Does that does that resonate with you, Robin, and what I'm saying? Yeah. Earlier in March, the four co-founders of Amplified Opera, along with some other artists, had a live digital conversation about gender and opera. And that's actually still available for viewing online. It's at coc.ca slash gender and opera. There have been more non-binary and trans artists getting a lot of credit where credit is due, finally. Um, But those totally challenge the norms. Like you have like each... Each vocal fach has its kind of archetype and its its story. So yeah, it sounds like I'm not I'm not far off, but it maybe not as close as I thought either. Talking about like what's on the horizon or like this exciting stuff that's percolating, Karen, we're curious about how do you see criticism evolving over the next few years? Well, if I have anything to do with it, um, I I am really excited to be to see what is going to happen when more indigenous black and person of color voices and otherwise minoritized voices find their way into theater criticism as as I believe they will. Um I'm working on an, on a few projects um trying to I feel like the biggest thing that we we can do right now in Canadian theater criticism is lower barriers for uh, participation in theater criticism. I know this is this is sounding very top down and white saviory, and I don't intend it that way. Those of us who are professional theater critics in Canada do tend to be white college educated folks, and how can we be using our um, privilege, our responsibility in ways that might lower those barriers and might offer opportunities, find ways, pathways for folks that might not previously have thought that this was something that was available to them or they even wanted to do um, to, to try it out. Because I, I mean, I've always said to my theater criticism students, and I've been teaching theater criticism for 25 years, I, I don't think I'm going to turn you all. Like if I teach, if like there's going to be one or two students out of a class of 30 that want to do this. It's not for everyone. And, but there might be others who might, find that they really love this. They might have the experience that I had, like figuring out like, oh, this is, there's a, this is a job. Like I can respond to the arts and, and people are going to want to hear what I have to say. And so I think the, 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 for want of a better word, diversification of, of the field is something that I'm really, really looking forward to seeing happen. You already spoke to us about that project in response to 21 Black Futures, but just wondering, is there anything else that's giving you hope right now that's getting you excited about what's to come? Totally. Well, I'm working on a, I, I, 21 Black Futures was really, there's a lot of momentum behind that. And so I'm working on a project with a couple of academic colleagues um, to have a BIPOC critics lab this summer and intensive. And we're talking to a few Toronto theater organizations. The question for us was, how are we going to find these these young folks, right? Well, the response that we had to 21 Black Futures, to the student response project, we got three times as many students who wanted to do it as we could take, which was an unexpected bounty. And again, this is one of these weird things that's positive out of COVID is that you didn't, it was not location-based. So we had responses from all over the country. So I'm looking forward to reaching out to those young folks and other young folks and bringing people together to start to have them work with some more established IBPOC critics, writers, artists, 
and just starting to stir that pot. I'm going to start putting a lot more energy into, into seeing what the summer project is going to look like. Welcome to the bonus question round. Um, first question, in your opera going experience, is there a production that has really stood out? I spoiled because I already said it, Sadia Graha. I've really enjoyed since I've moved to Toronto getting to see a number of, of shows at the COC. The opera experiences that stand out to me are the ones where, I, where theater makers like Peter Hinton move into opera making and, I, and you get to see them stretching themselves and, and embracing mm. all those forms of expression. Yeah. It's always so exciting to see someone at the precipice or at that threshold between what they do typically and like that new form of expression. So exciting. Um, so this might be hard to choose from, but what theater experience has had the greatest impact on you? Uh, no, that's easy because it was life changing. Um, it was in 1990 and I was in London, UK in the waiting tables and seeing everything phase. And I went to the National Theater to see a work by this Quebec theater artist that they just, the quotes in the paper were amazing. And it was Robert Lepage. And the piece was called Tectonic Plates. And it, this was kind of his second major international big show. And it was astonishingly fresh to me, his stagecraft, the, the transformational nature of the staging, the use of multiple languages on stage. Cause of course he's always playing with that as a, bilingual francophone Quebecer, but there was semaphore, like there was, um, you know, flag waving semaphore signs in the show was another form of expression. And he was in it as an actor. Um, he played a character who was what we would now say trans, although we didn't have that language back then. And Robert Lepage is an astonishing actor. Um, he underplays everything. That's his MO. And just all, he, he draws energy by not over-emoting, but under-emoting. And this is part of his philosophy of acting. And I just, I was like, what, what, what was that? And that, that was the beginning, the, the germ of what became a PhD and what became a book and what's now been most of my career following and chronicling and engaging with the work of this artist who's sometimes controversial and who has made a really significant contribution to, to performing arts in the world over the past 40 years. Which theater artists do you most admire right now? Oh my goodness. I made a list. Um, Crystal Pite, amazing Canadian choreographer, Taylor Mack um, out of New York, incredible drag artist, uh, Michael Keegan Dolan, who is an Irish choreographer who had a production of Swan Lake that was here a few summers ago in Luminato. It's interesting because I found myself saying a lot of people who work at the at the boundaries of theater and dance, because a company that my my friend and colleague Carly turned me on to is Rock Bottom Dance here in Toronto. Alyssa Martin is a choreographer, unbelievably fresh millennial dance company, theater dance company, love their work. And basically anyone in the 21 Black Futures Project, like that's 63 amazing Black Canadian theatre artists. Because as we speak, those monodramas have all dropped on, on CBC Gem and CBC Arts website. And so I'm still making my way through them. And it's, it's I mean, I'm, I'm borrowing what Car Carly said, which is like, it's since COVID, it's the one time I've felt like the, like literally the excitement, that excitement of the, of the lights going down. Like it really feels like such, it's so visceral what they're doing. And it's such an incredible showcase for incredible black Canadian theater artists. Fantastic. Thank you. 
uh, lightning round. So yeah. just first thing that comes to mind, Karen, <laughs> just go with your gut. Uh, who is your favorite playwright? Carol Churchill. Favorite director? Robert Lepage. The last show you saw in person? I kind of want to say it was Hamilton. I mean, I think there might have been a few since then, but but that was the last major opening I attended before it all crashed. Favorite pre or post show meal? I have to say when I'm reviewing, what I do after a show is I go home and have a glass of wine and read the play again. Um, so I'm kind of boring. Like that's your asocial answer. But I will say right now, I would gnaw on a dry crust of bread in front of a theater if it meant that I was going in there to see live theater. Like I, you know, I just do anything to be back live in a theater again. Do you have a least favorite theater trend? The fact that there isn't any right now. <laughs> yeah, we got to stop doing that. We got to yeah. get rid of that. We got to fix Let's that just, trend. Just really have it. <laughs> um, so intermission or one act plays. Oh, um, I do like a, a tight 80 minutes. I do have to say, but I also, because I, you know, I'm somebody who's been following Robert Lepage's work for 40 years, no, 30 years, um, is I also like an epic, like I, w I sat through all of Einstein on the beach. I had a transcendent experience. So like really tight and short or super long. So there's an event and you spend the whole day and you get to know the people sitting around you and it's like life in the theater. Hmm. What do you consider to be the best seat in the house? Ah, um, well, where the critic sits, of course. And this is, of course, going to completely undermine everything I've said about how we need to, we need to uh, diversify and democratize criticism. But critics historically sit on the aisle. And the reason for that is because back in the day, they would literally need to run out of the theater as the applause was happening because they could make a deadline for that night's edition. And so, and so now typically critics are sat on aisles and I have gotten incredibly spoiled because you can throw your legs out into the aisle and you don't have another person next to you. So for me, like 12 rows back on the aisle is a super happy space for me. Karen, this has been great. It's been lovely to sort of talk about that theater stuff and the opera stuff and just your enthusiasm for things that are like 21 Black Futures is getting me excited and enthusiastic to then dig in and just sort of um, find that spark again, because I know it's been a hard it's been a hard year. Yeah. And thank you so much for being interested in talking to a theater critic, because um, I know this is an opera podcast, but I know that I, I know from having listened to the podcast that you are coming at it from such interesting angles. Robin, uh, it was so great to meet Karen. I've heard about her a lot through you, and she's even more wonderful than you described. So a great honor and uh, really fascinating to have that chat with her. Yeah, it was really fun to actually get to bring someone who helped me find my voice right. into our space. Right. Because it was, I just want to take a moment to say thank you to Generator, which is an incubator in Toronto that focuses on mentoring, teaching and innovation in the theater arts or performing arts. They ran the performance criticism training program. The program was targeting BIPOC, queer and women's voices. Those are voices historically underrepresented in general, but especially so in criticism. So it was really a great initiative. And without it, I wouldn't be here. So yeah. it was cool to talk to her.
Well, and really cool that uh, Karen, she reviews theater, but she has this great interest and knowledge about the work of Robert Lepage, who's an artist that COC audiences might be very familiar with due to the fact that he works in the opera field as well. I read her book cover to cover a couple of weeks ago. And it was a very fascinating read. I don't know that it's um, casual light reading for anybody (laughs) who is not in academia. Uh, But one thing I learned that really recontextualized Robert Lepage and how I look at his style of production. I don't know enough about um, Quebecois culture. As an Anglo, I don't recognize that there is maybe some self-deprecation and some humor in it because it's a piece I'm missing, not being so close to that culture. So it was really important to hear someone who could translate that for me. What I'm hearing is that the critic has an important role to play or can play a really important role in adding this additional context and knowledge, and they can do some research and unpack things for us so that as we receive the work, if we're lacking for whatever reason, whether it's a cultural barrier or a linguistic barrier, if we don't have that knowledge for ourselves, the critic can be a guide for us, an aid for us through that process. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the importance of having critics who are really knowledgeable about what they are talking about. It's more than just, I like this, or I didn't like this. It's being able to articulate where it fits. And the larger conversation, maybe. Exactly. So that just changed my relationship. That little tiny puzzle piece changed my relationship to Robert Lepage. There have been a lot of difficult things about him that um, I don't want to be an apologist for, but I do feel that maybe there are things I miss not being an expert, being an outsider to his work and to the culture that his work is created within. Well, and it makes me wonder about when I attend a production, who else is there in the room, in the audience that has a different lived experience that I do and therefore might be receiving or viewing the work differently. And when I attended Bug, which is that production that Karen referred to, so Yolanda Bennell's performance, they... um Cole Alves and Yolanda Bennell, before the production began, they took a moment to honor the Indigenous women in the room. And so it brought my attention as an audience goer to the fact that Yolanda wanted to share this performance uh, to honor these women. And it brought her attention to that. And it placed me in a different position to the work, knowing those women were there and that that work was for them. These are just really wonderful, innovative, forward-looking, empathetic, community-based ways of encouraging response to work and encouraging audience members to think about um, how they are positioned in relationship to the work. And all this to say, I think this is a really exciting time to be an audience member receiving work. I like how it challenges our notions of expertise and what expertise is. Like conventionally, you talk about in journalism and criticism objectivity is a really big thing. But how, how can you be both objective and an expert and not too close, but close enough to understand? It ends up erasing a lot of proximity that I think is necessary to fully appreciate very culturally specific works. Mm. And not to diminish the importance of what you're saying, Robin, because I think it's increasingly a a big part and important part of the conversation. 
Uh, but I also appreciated what Karen said in terms of ages when we're looking at who is what is the age of the person who's receiving this work and how does that affect their proximity, like you said, potentially to the work and and their response. So she spoke about Wicked. And I know I had an experience seeing the Jane Eyre musical in Toronto when I was about 16 years old. And I wept and the collar of my shirt was just completely soaked through with tears. I had this transcendent experience. And then that show goes to Broadway, has some revisions, but never has quote unquote success. You know, it wasn't received very well by the critics and it wasn't received very well from by you know Jane Eyre um, experts in their 40s or people who love the novel and and all of that is okay but in my 16 year old experience it was this beautiful transcendent moment that was ultimately uh, transformative and super successful in terms of the impact it had on me how was the criticism positioned because clearly it was ideal for teenagers it, it should be okay for a critic to say, hey, you know what? I'm a 40-year-old white dude. I'm whatever. Um, this was, I didn't appreciate it because I was not the intended audience. However, this is seems to be ideal for teenagers. And it would be great to then follow that with a teenager's response. Mm. How... And for that to be accessible to the audience, to potential audiences, or just anybody who's interested in the concept of the Jane Eyre musical and is it worthwhile or not. Right. Um, Right. Because, like, there's a power in saying, I don't know. Like, I am an expert, but this is a thing that I am not an expert in. Let's hand it over. Just to get on my soapbox for a moment. Without that, one runs the risk of dismissing productions that can have a great impact for certain audiences, in this case, teenage girls. And returning to the notion of objectivity, if the majority of critics are at such a distance from the intended audience, critics can wind up judging the value or merit of something based on a set of stereotypes or misunderstandings and maintain the status quo, which only serves a small portion of audiences, especially when getting into really culturally specific works. It's also just unreasonable to ask a very small number of writers to be experts in so much when we're in a city like Toronto, which has so many diverse people and cultures. Having more voices means more accurate representation and understanding. Sharing is caring. Yeah, I remember seeing Spring Awakening um, in New York on Broadway, and I was older at this point. I was no longer a teenager, but I watched the teenagers who were receiving that show and who were cheering and so moved, and I could see that. And it was a really neat experience to be there experiencing the show in the way that I was, which was disparate, which was different than what they were experiencing, and to see both of those happening, both of them being real and true and legitimate reactions to the work, and yet they were very different. And I'm reminded of what Anne said in our previous criticism episode about a successful review for her leaves that space for the audience members to read it and go, okay, I would have liked it or I would not have liked it, but to have enough information and context. Um, And then, like you said, isn't it beautiful to think, can we open up who is responding? So you get that 40-year-old white man, but then you also get like a bunch of different voices speaking to the work. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I wanted to mention um, just as a note of housekeeping, in the interview, I referenced Hannah Chan Hartley's interview mm. um, and talking about me asking a question about Baroque opera and her saying it's not my specialty. I did not mean to conflate her as a critic. She, that is not her job. However, 
I just wanted to use that to exemplify that it is in professional circles, it is totally okay to say, I'm not an expert in that. I do not know. And that was my intention not to conflate her her, or her work with Karen or Anne. Um, Just wanted to put that out there because I realized, I realized afterwards it sounded like I might have done that. And that was not my intention. Just that if there's space for it in Hannah's world, there's space for it in our world too. Right. That we all have the right to say, you know what? I don't know. That's not my wheelhouse. That's not what I know best, but maybe there's someone else who does, who can offer something. And for anyone who's curious, um, thanks Robin for, for taking the time to clarify that. And uh, that's in episode two. So anyone who wants to check out Hannah's interview, you can go back and do so. Uh, now, another thing we talked about with Karen, which I think is very important to flag, is the critics as keepers of the historical record and what an important role they have to play um, so that decades from now, centuries from now, they provide us with this way of looking back on what was accomplished during this period. I had never really considered the the importance of criticism or writing about performances as a historical document until I was in my 30s and doing my undergrad. Um, and I was doing a presentation on Tristan and Isolde. And I read a review that said, and I believe I'm quoting pretty directly, that it was sonic pornography. And it's silly, and it's a little salacious. But it really solidified in that moment, the importance of criticism and writing about performance as historical documents. In reading that, I could understand that this opera that I listen to and I hear so much longing and so much sensuality and sexuality, and I take for granted that it's this really intense, sexy, longing opera, but it was scandalous. Like when they heard that for the first time. So I could understand it very differently than I do now. Like, it wasn't always, oh, yeah, that's that hot opera. Likewise, I think it gives us insight into what it takes to create something great or something enduring. Uh, for example, the the reviews around the initial reception of Madame Butterfly tell us that it the Madame Butterfly that we know here and now, and we could have a whole episode about Madame Butterfly and the complexities there and the things to unpack, and there's certainly a lot. Uh, but when it was first performed, it wasn't received very rapturously. Um, there was a lot of people who pointed out that there were that there were problems, and so a lot of revisions happened before it became the work that achieved greater success. And the critics and what they wrote about at the time are part of our record of that and part of why we know these works, what had to happen in order for them to become what they became. Yeah, as a sort of funny sidebar, I feel like the original from what I've read of reviews would actually be more entertaining in some ways now. I mean, just to speak to the character of Kate Pinkerton, that she was largely cut out entirely. 
what and what's interesting about it now like how would that fit in today's narrative how would the critics respond if that wasn't cut out today well and that makes me think robin that whether these critics are offering conversations here and now or whether we're looking back 200 years ago on what the critics were writing about and documenting to me it's a really good reminder that we're all participating in the ongoing story of of opera production or theater production that we're just one chapter of it, or even just one little paragraph of one chapter in it. And that we're all part of this constantly evolving whole entity that will continue to move forward beyond us. Thanks for joining us in our small little paragraph. We're so glad you joined us for episode 15. And a special thanks to Karen Fricker for being our wonderful guest on this one. We also wanted to share a happy update about a work discussed earlier. Since we first recorded this episode, Yolanda Bonnell's Bug has been nominated in the drama category for a Governor General's Literary Award. Some very well-deserved recognition and congratulations to all the finalists. Yes, congratulations. Next time on the podcast... We're throwing the spotlight on a building that's been key to so many of the stories and topics discussed so far on the show, the Four Seasons Centre for the Performing Arts. That's right. Our Toronto venue was the first purpose-built opera house in Canada and has served as a local and international stage for artists of all kinds, as well as a community hub. We'll connect with the architect behind the venue's distinctive design, Jack Diamond, co-founder of Diamond Schmidt Architects. We'll also be speaking with Janice Oliver, who oversaw the building of the Opera House. And if you'd like to know what it's like performing in that incredible space, we'll hear from an artist who's no stranger to the COC's main stage, Sandra Radvinovsky. Yes, the star soprano last performed at the FSC in a stunning production of Rusalka in 2019, and we're sure she has many stories from that stage. Oh my gosh, I don't doubt that at all. It's going to be a great one, so make sure to join us. Bye, everyone. Be the first to find out about free events and concerts from the COC by signing up for our monthly eOpera newsletter at coc.ca slash eOpera. Thank you to all of our supporters for making Key Change possible. This week, we want to especially thank every COC member, subscriber, and donor for coming on this journey with us as we explore new ways to share opera's unique power. So to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Key Change, wherever you get your podcasts. Key Change is produced by the Canadian Opera Company and hosted by Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. To learn more about today's guests and see the show notes, please visit our website at coc.ca slash keychange.